Welcome to Social Sessions. I'm joined today with one of the most compassionate and empathetic people I've had the pleasure of meeting. His energy for work and his ability to listen and take other people's opinion on board is remarkable. His law degree and willingness to help alongside his innovative element when change is needed sets him up perfectly for the lead worker in the module aftercare programme, Scott Jenkins. So Scott, uh, obviously you uh, grown up, you grew up in uh, Camelin, which is kind of no... Um, it's got its problems with addiction and crime and stuff like that. What was it like growing up? Um, I hesitate to talk too negatively about my childhood, but um, you certainly seen your fair share of people with mental health problems in the area and addiction issues and, and probably both. Um, like I say, I, I had a good childhood. I was really fortunate um, looking back on it, but it's an area that does have its fair share of crime and anti-social behaviour at best that um, that touches a lot of people in the area. Obviously looking um, to kind of where the job that you've kind of moved into, um, you always kind of had, obviously we spoke a wee bit before and you always kind of had a holistic approach to addiction and crime and stuff like that. Where did that come from? Um, I, I, again, my mum and dad are both mental health nurses and I think the, the outlook I've always had um, kind of has rubbed off really from looking looking up to them, if you like. Um, my mum and dad are both still approached to this day by former patients in the street that talk so positively about the, the care that they got. Um, and my dad's long retired and it just happened the other week when I was in town with him. Uh -huh. So they come up to him and um, he was really, really touched by that. Um, yeah, the like I say, mental health, um, which goes hand in hand with addiction and, and other issues was something that was never ever stigmatised in, in my house growing up. Right. Um, something we were all very alive to, given um, my mum and dad's careers. Um, I spent a lot of time as a kid in my mum's work at f fairs and fundraiser days and stuff like that for people who are in a halfway house and right. going back into the community after being in the hospital. So, like I said, the mental health and it was something that we, were, we certainly never looked down our nose at and I was always alive to for a very, very young age. Right. So obviously it's quite a good kind of um, background that you've had going into, uh, going into university. Um, so take me back to kind of your university days. When did that start? How did you start getting into kind of law? What, what made you get into that? So again, talking back to the, the kind of general stupidness that we, we touched on uh, at the start. When I was in fifth year at the school, the plan was to go into oil and gas or to get a trade. Like many people for Falkirk, they tend to go and work in oil and gas at Grangemouth or, or offshore. That was a uh, kind of well-trodden path for a lot of guys my age. And then when I was about 15, 16, that's when you kind of start to get in a bit of bother uh, and you can zig and stay the zag and you can find yourself in a bit of a, bit of a situation. Um, when that inevitably happened to me, um, my gran had said to me that um, I should have been the person defending somebody or the person getting a bother, and that really stuck with me. Um, and for that point, I kind of turned my back on all the sciences and wanted to go into oil and gas and, and go and get a trade. And I was like, you know what, I do want to pursue a career. Right. Well, that really, that one week in a chink of an idea really, really, really stuck with me. And um, yeah, the... At that point, I kind of I, I, I jacked off the sciences and, and started studying humanities in my sixth year with the plan to go into only law school as soon as I as soon as I left school. 
obviously looking um, at university, looking at the kind of law degree and stuff like that. Um, obviously, we'll go into talk uh, about it, obviously, a lot, a lot more detail later on, but do you think, like, the law degree sets you up for what the actual system's like? I don't. Um, certainly at the undergrad level, which um, is your, your first your first three years of your, of your law degree, you're taught that this remedy exists and it's all very by the book. Um, the, the example I always use when I'm, I'm talking to the students in work is we get taught that if somebody oversteps the mark and um, in a public role, you can take them to judicial review. Um, and the textbook will say that, but what the what they only tell you is that it's absolutely nigh on impossible to win a judicial review, and it has to be absolutely out with the the bounds of reasonableness for it to be successful. So all these remedies that you're taught exist, and on paper you quickly find when you kind of scratch below the surface, um, are only exist on paper. I know there's a lot of legal concepts and stuff like that people don't really understand that comes into play. Um they seem to be kind of covered in a lot of angles, didn't they? Like, um, obviously, like when when you're doing your law degree, they probably don't t- talk to you about kind of some of the stuff that you'll face kind of daily, like your finality and certainty, and obviously stuff we'll go into later on, like the mood of and stuff like that. You you don't really get taught that at the kind of. So was that a surprise when you when you, see, you actually see what the system was like? It was certainly an eye-opening experience starting to 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 get hands-on experience in the criminal justice sector when I first. Um, when I first managed to to get my teeth in it, I feel like I chose to go to the University of Strathclyde to seek out first-hand experience for myself right. at the earliest possible opportunity. They've got um, a brilliant charity operating through there called the the University of Strathclyde Law Clinic. Um, that was my aim was to go there and to to get the the first-hand experience, um, and I was really. Obviously, I was fortunate to get a knockback because what had happened is I'd applied to be a student advisor in my first year, and the um, I was I was told I didn't have enough experience. I probably didn't interview all that well. Um, some years later, when I was further on at the law clinic, I was a person doing interviews, and I, I realised now that I certainly didn't interview that well. When I got the sheet saying what what you're expected <laughs> to say as a as an interviewee, um, but what you're offered if you didn't get allowed to be the person getting a student advisor getting out advice in these types of cases that are like employment tribunals and stuff Aye. like that, that that you're able to do as a student advisor you can go and work for one of the projects um, I'd intended to go and there's an internet law service that they operate Aye. with somebody if you further afield say they live in the eyeless guy they can they can write in and get advice for a law student based in Glasgow um, so that's what I intended to, to get involved with and then there was an open day for um, all the different projects and the the girl at the time that was running the Strathclyde Innocence Project pitched that there's teams of Strathclyde students looking to investigate and hopefully correct potential miscarriages of justice um, and that my eyes were kind of opened it right away at that stage. Um, so was that something like obviously as soon as you kind of heard the Innocence Project kind of what it was all about um, probably like-minded students was it something that kind of interested you straight away like we kind of yeah so access to justice is one of the main reasons that i wanted to go and 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 practice law and then was there was a plan to go and do my LLB. um and it was access to justice at the level that we kind of touched on earlier on at the start that somebody can can find themselves 
having made a mistake in the sheriff court um, and they're represented by a solicitor who's got 10 files under their arm and all the all the dealings are done in the corridor of the right. court and somebody who had the solicitor had the time and attention to try and rectify this mistake that they've made could get a positive result and their life is no adversely affected or the, quite the opposite could happen and that's mm -hmm. the kind of access to justice that I was wanting to provide and, right. I, and I went to, to Strathclyde to join the law clinic to to get that straight away on the kind of micro level for the individual somebody's been wrongfully dismissed at their work um, their life's been turned upside down by that and they need help and they they don't qualify for legal aid because they've got enough savings but really in reality if they had to pay for the services the solicitor to represent them they haven't got the money so they didn't meet the means test but they um for legal aid, but they actually meet a kind of slightly more generous means test for the law clinic. So see, even like looking at the kind of minor stuff that you're saying, like kind of like employment issues, stuff like that, like unfair dismissals, whatever. Um, what kind of effect did you see that having on people? Was the, did, you, did that have an adverse effect on people? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and it was that was one of the, once I, the following year, I was a student advisor in the clinic after getting involved with the Innocence Project. And you really did see people that the levels of stress and what I now recognise as, as kind of trauma-related symptoms, people that are really, um, they've, they've allowed this issue and this sense of injustice that somebody might just be able to brush off, but it really has it has destroyed their lives. And they, they are they are crying out for help as much as, as, much as anybody else that I deal with. It's done, it's done a long prison sentence. The, right. the people... People are really affected by things in different ways. We've spoke a lot, Scott, about stuff less than what I, like the, 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 I've said, like in Machiavelli, like I go back to that, he says one of the, the, the worst ways is is to hurt somebody as a sense of injustice. Um, so if I take you back to the kind of innocence project, how did that go? How did the, 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 the cases go? Did you, did you go in? Did you get cases overturned? Did you, did you, did you manage to kind of so the first thing that that I was invited along to when I put my name down to, to join the Innocence Project at Strathclyde was there was a training day by Dr. Eamon O'Neill, um, who that meant none to me at the time. Aye. And um, but it turns out he was an investigative journalist that was paramount in winning the appeals of some of the most high-profile clients that I represent today. Um, but I, I, I didn't know a thing about it. I was 18 and, and pretty naive, but I knew... Like I say, that I, I was interested in access to justice, and you can, I could imagine the fallout for for people that have been wrongfully imprisoned, and I and I was eager to learn more about it. Um, and he just come in and he was teaching the law students how to reinvestigate a potential miscarriage right. of justice, and how the different techniques that he's used during his career to properly scrutinise crown evidence and make sure you go to the locus and stuff like that. But he'd done that through talking about a number of high profile cases that he has investigated himself, and. Um, um, much like a lot of the young students that come with us today, the cases that he was talking about meant nothing to me at the time either, but he's right. talking about the, the Birmingham Six and the um, Tommy Campbell and Joe Steele's case. Um, and that's when I really I first got the bit between my teeth and I thought these are the, the types of people that that um, that I want to support and I want right. to utilise. Well, my first thought was I want to go and be an investigative journalist. Right. I was wanting to... It made that seem um, a lot more... Kind of romantic and, and exciting as Aye. as um 
as what well, you might imagine a lawyer does and what we were hoping to achieve by reviewing paperwork and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it, it opened my eyes to to serious catastrophic and high profile failings that um, that kind of guided my career in the direction it did as well. And it taught me an important lesson that when a case gets to us, the Strathclyde Innocence Project or, or Mojo, who I work with today, that don't just do a paperwork review right. because by that point it's passed through a number of lawyers' hands and it's maybe been to the commission already and they've just looked at the papers. But if you're wanting to use the, the, the time and the resources you've got to generate a new lead, you have to not just review the file, you need to make sure that you're out in the field speaking to new people, okay. um, scrutinising what witnesses mm -hmm. have said and um, going to look at the locus because he, he says I guarantee you that the repeal lawyer and the commission at their last attempts at appeal has not done that. Right. So you you just go and do it. That, that really stuck with me as well. So you obviously go through the Innocence Project. Um, you're starting to get the kind of feel for like wanting to help people and in, injustice. How how did Mojo come about? How did how did that kind of um, role come about? How did you start volunteering with them? So in my first year, I joined and I was allocated a case. Um, and I worked really closely with the case manager in that case. And then um, when she graduated um, at the end of that year, I was asked to be the case manager in that team. You're involved more in the kind of management of the innocence project structure, if you like. Everyone at the clinic is, is supervised by solicitors, but it's very much student-led at, yeah. at, at every level. And um, what started to come about was this network innocence project within Scotland that was kind of coordinated by the Mojo management at the time. So it was the Strathclyde students, um, an innocence network that was operating up at Aberteil University that have since folded, and Mojo coordinating this network and sending cases for the students to investigate. Um, so that's when I first started to get in touch with with Cathy and and the rest of the volunteers, right. and I had. Like I say, I had the bit between my teeth and that was the idea. I was wanting to find micro instances of injustice and, and try and help these people. Aye. So I started volunteering in Mojo in parallel with working at the clinic as well as kind of nurturing this relationship that still exists today where where the clinic sends us students to, mm -hmm. to give training in appeals law. Because that's really what was unfortunately lacking at the time. As I say, we were a team a team of enthusiastic, well-intentioned law students, but with zero appeals law training um, and a high turnover because, like I say, people graduate and they leave because of exams and stuff like that. So you're reinventing the wheel and we've Aye. got very little drive. So whilst when I graduated, they were talking about folding the project because there was no real supervision. Aye. So I restructured it so that they continue to send us students and the project that I ran today still exists in the form of... Hey, we've still got this brilliant relationship with Strathclyde where they send us 10, 15 students a year for us to train in appeals law and to and to make sure that that they've got that kind of guidance under under our in-house lawyers supervision. I, th I think obviously like when you go into Mojo it says it's like a family. Um, you've got like Kathy there, she's like everybody's mum. You've got you in there who's really clever with the law. You've got yourself who's like a lawyer, but they've written rolled into one lawyer social worker, addictions worker. Um, how did Mojo form? How did that come about? I know it was obviously through Paddy Hill, but how did how did that, how did it come about? How is it? So like I said, these high profile, catastrophic 
most egregious British miscarriages of justice that that the people at a certain age certainly still think of when you mentioned miscarriages of justice was the Birmingham Six, followed by the Guildford Four and the Maguire Seven in the late nineteen seventies, um, who fell victim to a hostile political climate against Irish people during the Troubles, and were all tortured and and falsely some false confessions and all wrongfully convicted uh, of troubles related incidents in Birmingham, Woolwich and um, Guildford. So Paddy Hill, our founder, um, 16 years later after being sentenced to life for mass murder for a crime he never committed, um, won his appeal after right. 16 years and knew of having spent such a long time in prison that he was leaving innocent people behind. And he vowed to spend a year to campaign for these people, and right. then and then to retire. Right. Um, to this day, he still remains right. on our board right. of directors right. all these years later. That was 1991. Um, so by 1993, he was going to be retired and and um, stop campaigning for justice. But um, the organisation that he set up down in Birmingham and in Glasgow was the was the Miscarriages of Justice right. organisation. So we started humble beginnings. Um, Paddy and a, and a campaigner called John McManus founded the organisation um, and my boss to this day, Kathy Malloy, come on as a criminology student and really took the organisation single-handedly from strength to strength. Right. Where we covered in Albion Street to, to a, a, an organisation that does great, great work with a small army of volunteers and a and uh, it's true when you, I mean, obviously you and like you and say that it's like there is there is um, there is scope to argue there that that you are the the busiest law firm in Scotland. <clears throat> um, I mean, the amount of work that goes through for three workers is yeah. So we're we're not a, a law firm. We're um, we're in a sense a legal services provider because we do you and as a registered solicitor does provide um, legal advice and assistance to our clients. But we operate in three key areas, which is the casework, which is um, the the correcting and identifying and seeking, identifying and seeking to correct potential miscarriages of justice through the casework. And for that service, we get 250 applications a year. Um, and we have to properly assess every case on its merits. Um, that's 250 people that alleged that they've been a victim of miscarriage of justice. Um, so there's... Is this where the students become priceless? Like? Absolutely, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, we are really efficient at kind of assessing the, 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 the deserving cases for our support. Right. So of that 250, we'll take on 10 cases each year for casework support, but that, that comes with its own difficulties. Right. Um, because as I touched on earlier on, by the, the time a case arrives at my desk as a caseworker and Mojo, it'll have, the person has been wrongfully convicted and we accept that they're arguably innocent, so they're eligible for the casework and the aftercare support. What does that mean, Scott? Just to, just for the viewers, what does factually innocent mean? Like, Because I know that obviously people say like, oh, uh, Mojo, I've got people in the books that maybe only um, had their conviction quashed. What what is factually innocent? Is that um, so? It's, it's one of the three criteria for assistance that that you need to have to get access to the casework function at Mojo. You have to have been convicted in a Scottish court. Um, so some of the applications we get for the rest of the world, the rest of the UK, drop off at that stage. Um, sentenced to four years or more in prison. 
which is just because we're a we are a small charity. We do big work, as I say, but we're we're under resourced, and we need to just deal with the most serious types of offences because we undertake to do everything properly for each client and 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 order to challenge our conviction if we can. And if we opened the application system up to to those that have been convicted to less than four years, we just wouldn't be able to give everybody the proper time and attention that we can. So we have to draw a line somewhere for life sentence down. Mm-hmm. And that's um, just long-term sentences that we, we can engage with. And the third most important criteria for assistance for for our services is that you have to have an objectively arguable claim to factual innocence. So in simple terms, that that means that where a crime's taken place, you had absolutely no involvement at all, or in mm-hmm. the second type of even miscarriage of justice, if you like, is that where it's no in dispute that it was you, that right. there has to have been absolutely no crime that's taken place. Um, and this is a test that can be a bit counterproductive, certainly for some of our more experienced law students and lawyers that come in to help us. Because if you were an appeals lawyer working in Glasgow, you didn't have to carry out this first test. Right. You are simply going to what is your second stage of review, which is there a stateable and arguable appeal point that can get this person back into the court. Right. So, like I say, but we're first and foremost we're an innocence project. We were set up by Paddy Hill to support and assist innocent people that have been in prison. So we will take an application for somebody. We'll make sure we get all the paperwork and all the information available to us, and then hear their position on why right. they tell us that they were wrongfully convicted. Properly take the case back to its nuts and bolts, and then as a team and as a committee, we'll come to a view as to whether the person is arguably factual innocent. So that's the case worker has to argue to a third party, i.e. the rest of the team, right. that they've got a case for factual innocence. So in simple terms, that, that they didn't commit the offence of which they've been convicted. So obviously, like, you've got yourselves, like, a load, a load of law students uh, working on their cases. What's some of the hurdles that stop them? Uh, the appeal, I mean, the appeal court are caution. Um, there's, there's not really any big cases in a lot, a lot, a, a, quite a long time, Scott. When was the last one? The last one I can kind of remember off the top of my head was probably like Craig McCree. I don't know if you know Craig, but um, Craig was uh, got his conviction quashed. But apart from that, like you're, you're going back to your like TC Campbell, Joe Steele, and so when, like I say, when you ask our students who are 18, 19, 20 when they, when they come in for their training. And you ask them to name a high-profile miscarriage of justice, most of them can't. Um, like I said, when I first went to my first training seminar at the law clinic, I wouldn't have been able to name me uh, a high-profile miscarriage of justice, but the kind of older band of students will name me a TC and Joe Steele, which was some time ago. I think the most important thing to note in terms of all the cases that I've mentioned so far um, Paddy's case and the rest of the Birmingham Six, um, Jerry Conlon and the Guildford Four, and um, the Maguire family and the Maguire Seven, TC and Joe Steele. These people all had two, three, and four attempts at an appeal before oh, their yeah. convictions were quashed, and then eventually the lid was lifted, and what an egregious and awful miscarriage of justice it was. But what happened in response to to these three big troubles related cases? Um, was that there was a public appetite for change and there was a serious push for this can't be allowed to happen again. And the response at the time um, was to form the CCRC down in England, the Criminal Cases right. Review Commission. Um, there was some resistance and pushback to having a commission up in Scotland, but eventually in 1999, some years later, the 
the SCC last year was formed and began operating in, in 1999. Do you think the public, um, as you were saying, like the kind of public uh, want for change is kind of uh, lost now? Like, yeah, that I think that, be... that appetite for, for this, this kind of ability to happen again and then in response, the government up here and down south in England provided this solution and then what happened is it had the opposite effect if you like the the you're able to say like that's a we've solved the problem now we're funding a commission that's there to be an impartial watchdog to investigate and correct potential miscarriages of justice but the problem is that to understand the context of the of the uh, the criminal justice system up here you need to understand the, the close to 90% of cases that go to trial result in a conviction Aye. and around 2 2.2% result in a successful appeal Aye. the the commission who are the watchdog that an innocent person without legal representation is supposed to go and present an argument and it's to be reinvestigated by the commission of that 2.2% is successful appeals they account for 1% of that 2.2%. So that's the only route we've got back into the appeal court. So that's the biggest the biggest hurdle I would say that we have as a as a legal casework team, is that by the time a case has got to us, the bones has been picked and um, the, the odds of having a successful appeal are really, really stacked against our clients at that stage. Obviously, we'll go into it in a wee bit more detail later on, but obviously looking at the um, like Paddy Hill, Jerry Conlon, uh, TC Joe Steele what, what, what kind of appeal points because they, they were huge appeal points what kind of appeal points were they that, that got these people cost they had the benefit which doesn't exist nowadays of teams of investigative journalists backing them and the sway public opinion that, that doesn't exist nowadays um, there seems to be a sort of plaster on the on the problem I feel like um, I've definitely I've definitely seen that myself um and I've obviously, we're going into too much detail, like with my own case, it's, it's, I've seen like stuff, I've, I've been through stuff where um, you think you've got the backing of the media and you think you've got something and then obviously it'll just kind of die out. Do you think that back then the... What was the name of the programme that they done the Rough Justice. Rough Justice. Do you think things like that were were, were big and, yeah. and so the, the they managed to sway public opinion. Um Gareth Gareth Pierce that represented Jerry and Paddy just pursued fresh evidence that was that was undeniable Aye. to win their appeal and and they were just really fortunate to 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 uncover evidence. Because like I say, they had two and three attempts at an appeal Aye. before the lid was actually lifted on these types of convictions. What was the evidence, Scott? What was the what was it that was actually was it hidden evidence or uh, it's hidden evidence of police falsifying records. Um that that they tortured these people in order to confess, buried alibis in the case of, of Jerry Collins' appeal. They had um So it's really serious stuff. Yeah, like serious, serious How do you go about hiding that? You just bury it for the for the defence. I think um, I think Gareth Pierce, um, unlike what was shown, and in the, in the film and the name of the father, where it kind of painted her as kind of acting dishonestly, um, she turned up to meet a secret policeman at the 
at the police station that held all the evidence in relation to the, the Guildford 4 case. Um, and he was off with the flu. Aye. And the person, she was entitled to go and take photocopies and stuff. The only, the only he was allowed to, to release. Aye. Um, he wasn't there on the day that she showed up. The, the policeman that was there says, look, just go and, and take what you want, if you like. And she uncovered evidence that, that was said never to be disclosed to the defence, that they had interviewed people, that there was a showing that the Jerry wasn't aware that the police were saying that he was when he, when he confessed. So I, I, that's outrageous, really. Mm -hmm. It's like um, stuff that people wouldn't really believe goes on. Mm -hmm. So... Why would it be? Why would it be any different today? Why would it be? Why would it be any different? What happens today is that these people see these big high-profile cases and think they're a thing of the past, or they think what, what I find oftentimes is people think it's something that happens in America and it, and it can happen here. We've got um, we've got all these protections for accused people and all these rights that we we touched on that exist in paper. You're innocent until proven guilty. In Scotland, we've got the requirement for corroboration. All the stuff they teach you at law school does right. exist until you until you scratch the surface or you seek to rely on one of these rights in a court. People think that these are problems of the past. Um, it's like mate, making a murderer, things like that, like uh, these these Netflix things, these cra like crazy uh, stories. Um, and it's as if people don't believe it happens in the UK. I don't people know. People don't believe it happens in the UK until until it happens to it happens to them. Unfortunately, I, I, I spend a lot of time in my capacity as doing through care and aftercare with with some of the most disenfranchised, traumatised, and vulnerable people in Scotland and and the rest of the UK that they don't believe. They think we've got a, a great criminal justice system because that's what, what everybody's taught to believe until they come into contact with it and they realise it's broken. And that goes for victims of crime as well. Um, of everybody looking at it from the other end of the telescope realises the system's absolutely broken. Justice either. Victims are obviously get the right to be angry, they've got the right to be hateful and mm. um, totally understand all that. But they're, they're, they're getting robbed of justice as well. So people go into the court thinking it's going to be a truth-finding exercise. They realise it's um, it's far from it. It's an adversarial game of two sides. One side has got a lot more funding than the other side. The Crown have got the best lawyers and, and all the resources in the world to to prosecute you. Um, and then the truth's neither here nor there. And by the time you come to the appeal court, you see... People who just want to protect the 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 public confidence in the justice system. You touched on the point of finality and certainty being used as an excuse no to to allow appeals in this country. That harks back again to Paddy's case, where Lord Denning said that it's such an appalling picture to believe that any police officer would torture these guys until they confessed that he would much rather see the Birmingham Six hanged for what they'd done than ever win a successful appeal. And that's one of the most senior judges in England at the time. That was his thoughts on finality and certainty. So it's worrying to me this day that they still make it the jury system, albeit on paper, when everybody does the role that they're supposed to do and the judge is an impartial arbiter and the, both sides are yeah. arguing their best case and, and truth will come out on paper. It's a, it is a great system if, if everybody's well resourced and properly doing their job. Today. If what 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 I've what I've tended what I tend to see is is you get these cases and you'll go up and you can you'll listen and a lot of people 
you'll go like that. I mean, that appeal is definitely a winner. Like, surely, God, you can't argue with some of the points that have just come out there and and then they'll just come out and they'll refuse it on something that you've just get, had any idea that there's something that wouldn't even have been in the periphery of you imagining how they would reject an appeal. So that's the first difficult conversation that we need to have with an applicant is that the appeal court isn't there to to overturn convictions and and um, and and assist somebody in your position. They're interested in justice on the broadest possible sense, which is there needs to be a functioning criminal justice system that makes people feel safe and. They see overturning a conviction as something that will jeopardise public confidence in the criminal justice system. So they'd much rather refuse an appeal and deny the individual person that, on the face of it, we believe is innocent um, access to justice um, in order to preserve public confidence in the justice system. And you, if you look at it from their side, you can see the logic in it. Like, obviously, nobody wants a justice system that seems to be turning out convictions that are getting overturned every every. 10 minutes, do you know what I mean? So I get why they would want that, but the lens they go to um, seem to I think overreach. if more people knew, Sean, that it just doesn't recognise itself as man-made, fallible, capable of, of being wrong, and and does actively try to look the other way and dispose of appeal points and, right. and be really quite masterful at disposing of well-argued appeal points in, in such a way that I think a lot of people would have more confidence in the justice system. I would think more ordinary people would have more confidence in it if it sought to to be more transparent and correct and identify, identify and correct rather its mistakes. Because it is one of the things that it's nothing to you. It's, it's one of the things that's... Uh, until you, you're involved with it, until like, a family member's involved with it, you really don't think anything of it. No. Um, and I think that that's only when you see people start, like, and I think it shocks people when people actually, like, your normal people, you have, like, obviously you you deal with aftercare, you, 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 you deal with mothers, brothers, fathers, whatever, like, loads of family members. And how frustrating is it for them when the, it's a clear appeal point you've got something there like maybe a murder weapon with somebody's fingerprints on it and you can't get into court like there's absolutely no how how does how does that happen oh the the, the fallout and the consequences for the families Aye. it's um it's absolutely catastrophic um and it, it certainly doesn't just touch the person that's um that's doing the time um i don't know about, about your experience with this but sometimes i find when the person is actually doing their sentence that the fallout for the families is is actually a lot worse it's when one of my clients is released from prison that they really have to face up to the trauma and and the the damage that's been done to them and everything that's that's changed and everything that they've lost and the time yeah. that they've spent in prison but the mothers that have lost their boy and the partners that have lost their oftentimes the breadwinner in the family um, for something that, that they know in their heart of hearts they didn't do um, I did help clients kids with referrals right. to school and additional support needs and stuff like that because they've, they've got adjustment disorders dad was there dad's no there for six years and then dad's back again and he's a completely right. different person the, um, the the damage it's done to the families is absolutely catastrophic I represent I believe the most vulnerable damaged and traumatised group of people in Scotland 
um, and and a, a few clients um, in the UK as well. I would agree with that. I would agree. And I'm not trying to take it in a way if like victims that I can't, I can't even start to understand. I've got a wee boy now and I can't even start to understand how you would feel if you lost your boy to a murder. Um, and I, 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 but there is a kind of um, support that they have, mm. um, which doesn't make it any better, but there is a support. There's, whereas when you're talking about miscarriage of justice victims, there, there literally is nothing bar mojo. Yeah, they live with, with the serious stigma. Uh, like I say, the clients we represent have all been convicted of the most serious types of uh, offences, oftentimes seriously violent, sometimes sexual offences, and they need to live with the stigma of that. Our position is obviously it, it, it doesn't matter what you've not done. Aye. Um, and uh, these people are entitled to support, but it's really hard to, to, to get support elsewhere but without right. without our organization we're the last line of defense in terms of pursuing an appeal in the casework team and we're a lifeline for for a small but but very deserving and disenfranchised group of people we're we're a one-stop shop for for absolutely every every single need that they've got because these people have lost all trust and and everybody they're they're lost and that includes their families as well too they won't go speak to a housing advisor they won't they they carry the stigma of this offence with them every everywhere they go. Aye. They do not trust anybody else. Thankfully, we as an organisation are really effective at rebuilding that trust in them to to first learn to trust us and then and then successfully reintegrate back into a, a more happy and successful life. But Aye. the without us, they are if left unsupported, they would they would have nowhere to go, as you say. So. We'll probably move on to that now, just moving on to the kind of aftercare stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so that's people that have obviously been through it, uh, come out at the other side, damaged, traumatised, uh, PTSD. We're lucky to have um, a counsellor who works pro bono. Um, he's a bit of a lifeline. Absolutely. Um, a diamond, a guy. Um, he's... he's He's absolutely transformed what we can do as an organisation, I would say. And right. as I say, at no cost to the organisation or the client. Um, Dr. Sterling has um, is really transformed what we can do. And what I can do with confidence as well. Um, I had this conversation with him one of the, the last times he was in. What he does is he gives us a monthly clinic for the clients where he sees three clients or four clients one day a month that are allocated by me. So if somebody's reporting having serious anxiety, panic attacks, they'll get a one-to-one -one session face-to-face -face with a psychiatrist who knows them and knows them well and other clients who are really really vulnerable continue to be under his psychiatric care to to no cost to the to the service user um but like i say i come from a, a legal background um i was really fortunate that when i graduated i was offered a job to retrain at mojo as the welfare rights advisor went and done my welfare rights training and almost as soon as that was finished the job to to be the aftercare manager and run the aftercare function Aye. i knew mojo was where i wanted to stay and i knew um i could um give any job mall i already had a great rapport with the clients but i knew i had a lot to learn in terms of mental health and and all these other things but having jeremy around Aye. as a as a psychiatrist on hand all the time has really allowed me to develop my person-centered trauma-focused practice. Um, learn to retrain as a psychosocial support worker with a, with a clinical psychiatrist to lean on every step Aye. of the way. It's, it's, it's allowed me really to develop 
Um, what is the like? I, I know it's like obviously it's it's, it's, it's evident with what kind of things like. I can only speak for like my my personal uh, experience, but the trauma that I went through when I came out at the start, like obviously you know, um, I was kind of just like the doctor was just flinging kind of pills at me. It was like uh, you were just kind of living in oblivion for a wee while, um, hyper vigilant state. You can't really come out of. Um, you think just there's just so much going on in your head. Um, I've been quite lucky. Obviously, I know I'm still damaged, um, but I've been quite lucky to be someone that's come out the other side and been able to maybe do some stuff like this mm -hmm. and talk and try and make for change. Um, I'm going to take you at a report that was done by, was it Dr. Adrian Grounds? Yeah, so Dr. Adrian Grounds is only peer-reviewed UK study and the effects of wrongful imprisonment done some some years ago now with a lot of our clients at the time that had uh, all served life sentences and had come through the process and won their appeal. So, so Paddy, as we touched on, took part and some other really, really high-profile people who we, we work with to this day. His study, as I said, correctly identified that the fallout for somebody who has spent um, five years or more in prison, um, and that's somebody who is a, is a guilty offender and, and, and the, in the eyes of the law to have been there, I, I feel like, that what starts to happen in terms of trauma is irreparable brain damage. Um, and for somebody who has been the victim of miscarriage of justice, who's been wrongfully convicted and shouldn't have been there, that the damage is accelerated tenfold. So for the guilty offender, the the five years of damage, they say it should take up to five years to sort of unpack and right. and, and retrain that person. They live with the trauma, uh, having their liberty taken away. But um, for a, a victim of miscarriage of justice, that it's amplified tenfold and is, is verging on irreparable. Um, I, obviously, I, I would hesitate to use the word irreparable because I don't feel as if I'm irreparable. Um, and some of the work that we have done has been pretty amazing, mm -hmm. um, especially the kind of recent group work. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we can't go into too much as diff different things, but the change in some of the people will just be showing them and probably trying to kind of show them that, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to kind of say, but there is a trump card that they can play. I've played it. Mm -hmm. I've done 15 years for something I've never done. I should be allowed to do this. I should be allowed to. You can't tell me what to do. You've never experienced it. You don't know what you're talking about. We seem to be breaking that that barrier, don't we? Absolutely. Not everybody, but some. some. Yeah. So I was really touched for your kind introduction at the start, but um, I was really fortunate to build on what other people have already built, what Paddy set up and what Cathy took for strength to strength. But the first thing I've done when I was asked, do you want to run the aftercare function um, and jump to the opportunity is I changed it for aftercare and reintegration program. So this focus on, like one of the most difficult parts of my job is that some of the clients are too damaged to be reached. They've right. done 30 years in prison for a young age and their life, unfortunately, is, is chaotic thereafter. And, you're there to care for them and they're right. a client for life. And that's aftercare. Mm -hmm. It's the um, it's dealing with everything that a client can't cope with when they first release first release. And for some clients, unfortunately that's still the case. Years and years and years down the line. Right. 
the focus on a, a renewed and emphasis emphasized focus on um, reintegration is what I wanted. So for these guys that could just say I'm irreparable right. and I can't be reached, it was a kind of drive to make sure that these guys do see tangible benefits and um, and and their lives. Right. The so it was again working out what this client actually wants for life because some of the guys they haven't got any goals and no. they're, they're 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 living in one room and they've practically re- like a jail cell supplement yeah, it like absolutely. a lot of the guys create recreate a jail cell within mm. within a room yeah so the guys that when you're in prison and and you'll perhaps be able to speak to this the safest that you feel is when your door's locked behind you at the end of the night and you're in one room on your own Aye. one wee room bed telly so when the guys come out the world just feels like a different kind of prison and they feel safest when they shut themselves in one wee tiny room. Some of the guys with big three bedroom houses and much rather lie on a mattress on the floor with, with just one wee tiny telly in one room because that's where they feel safe. It's sad, it's, it's sad as it's, um, and it's, what I've seen is when I, when I first came in, obviously I've tried my hardest to kind of look at things I've done kind of mind work on myself um i've tried to do personal development stuff like that so i'm i'm kind of i read a lot of books i started listening to people like gabber matty um people that that were basically saying like trauma isn't irreparable and it's mm-hmm. you can work with it. um addiction and stuff like that. It's no something because obviously a lot of people come out of prison with addiction issues so then when you mix the two together you get dual diagnosis which is just an absolute bombshell that's just when you get mental health and addiction run together um it's just chaos but what i think we've managed to do is just give even that level of awareness of that look your mental health is damaged but look at, and, and showing them that it can be repaired there was a bit of backlash when i first said that because i don't think anybody had ever said that before um and there is a part the a part that i would like to come and forgive everybody that done me wrong i'm not there yet and i'm no like anywhere near the complete article do you know what i mean i'm not where i want to be in life but you said to me before it was kind of hard and you were glad that I was able to say say that because it was hard for you as somebody that hasn't suffered a miscarriage as to say. Yeah. And since that, you've been able to kind of build real strong foundations for a a great programme and a great kind of group. So the group's one of the, 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 the most proud achievements I've had as the aftercare manager. Um, Apart from kind of individual one-to-one where you look, I've worked with this guy for five years and I can see tangible benefits in his life. I'm obviously proud to each of their clients and, and everyone I've managed to achieve for them. But on a kind of mass scale, the positivity that, that screams out of the groups now compared to, compared to when we first started them is, is unbelievable. And all the staff at Mojo are, are really touched with the change in some of the guys because they can feel that... The first thing we were trying to combat against is they feel that they're isolated... And the the trauma that's happened to them operates in a vacuum. Um, So bringing them to the group with the other guys who have had a similar 
traumatic experience and saying, like, you're not alone. This, this happened to me as well. I spent a long time in prison for something I did in the day too. I actually understand you. Right. Um, as much as Scott and mm -hmm. the rest of the staff, they empathise with you, they understand you're damaged, you're traumatised, but they don't know what it feels like to live with that sense of injustice. They don't know what the inside of the jail smells like, but I do, right. and I'm trying to move on. I've, I'm trying to manufacture the best quality of life I possibly can for myself. Aye. And these kind of positive clients like yourself and others have really had a massive effect on on some guys that have struggled for 40 years and, and 20 years and, and felt that there was no change and this was their life. It was going to be mm -hmm. living in one room, um, damaged, traumatized, anxious, doesn't trust anybody. But there's guys that they're even just carrying themselves different and their face right. looks different for having that exposure to the other guys. So I, like I say, I, I, I say it's, I'm most proud, proud of something I built, mm -hmm. but I just facilitated a, a way for, for my service users to come together and build something mm -hmm. greater than the, the sum of its parts. Right. Real positivity. Because um, oftentimes... The, the stories of our clients don't have happy endings right. but to, to, to manufacture something positive on the on a mass scale in these groups has, has really been something to behold and I'm a tremendously proud of what I've achieved in the groups so obviously like the groups are like uh, well uh, they've obviously been brilliant and I've obviously been lucky enough to be part of it um, so moving away from kind of the groups and then looking at some of the things that's happening with what I see a lot is guys just can't accept that there's no further, you can't go any further. So can you explain a wee bit about how the appeal process works in the way that if you use a point of appeal once, that's it? Yeah. So even if it's not particularly well argued, the the appeal point that you've you've tried to use before is, is barred for you at any stage. So... You've been wrongfully convicted, you get a, a, an automatic first right to an appeal if you can make a statable appeal point um, um, and you mark your, your first appeal two weeks for your last court diet, which will be your sentencing diet. That'll go to what's called the SIFT, which is, is the, the actual point of law that you're seeking a, a challenge arguable. So it's because the first kind of common misconception that we need to speak to people that apply for us to assistance for is... Um, is that an appeal isn't a retrial of the facts. The facts are almost, even if the facts are nonsensical and the jury's accepted something that, um, that can't possibly be true. Um, I worked a, a case when I was at the at the law clinic where a, a client was convicted of murdering somebody the day before he was seen alive to fit the Crown's timeline. And he was seen alive by eight witnesses. Um, and in the prosecution speech at the end of his trial they says all these people that you've heard for they're alcoholics and um, they're not to be listened to basically and the jury's accepted that so the guy's been convicted of killing him a day before he mm -hmm. was a, a day before he died and that fact is concrete now because the appeal system sees the jury as infallible it's not their job to look behind a jury's decision you have to win an appeal on a technical point of law or a point of fresh evidence that the court say um, would have had a material impact in the mind of the jury. So at that point, the court can tell you that a, a new piece of fresh evidence won't have had a, or they'll tend to say mm -hmm. won't have had a material impact in the jury, but at any other point, you're you're not getting in to argue on the facts. So the facts are the facts, and you're looking for a technical appeal point. So 
innocent people don't want their convictions quashed on a technicality. No. But that's after we've decided on the facts that we accept that they're innocent or arguably innocent, we'll then have to look for a technical appeal point to try and get them back into court. But in terms of the first appeal, the first thing their appeal team needs to do is make a stateable appeal point. So even like if they take their case at its highest, so it's just a point of law that looks like it's capable of being argued and a lot of appeals fall off at that stage and that point's no longer usable for you anymore. Um, and then your only route back into the appeal court is through the commission. Um, oftentimes clients before they've reached us have had their own attempt. Right. They've heard you can go to the commission unsupported and they'll have done the kitchen sink approach. They'll everything that they believe went wrong with their trial, 27 page um, right. application to the commission with annexes. Right. Um, and by that point they have chucked the kitchen sink and no harm to them. They're, they're no an appeals lawyer, it's no terribly well argued. And by that point, everyone's been properly assessed and the bones of a carcass and appeal have been have been picked dry. So that's the biggest difficulty you face, is that a, a lot of points have been used up by the time they reach right. us. And we need to have difficult conversations with people in prison that look, we'll endeavour, we, we accept that it's arguable that you've never done it, but there's no guarantee that we will find a stateable appeal point and we have to offer to support them in other ways and introduce them to aftercare upon release. So say you had a, say there was a client that's got major forensic evidence that wasn't heard at the trial. Um, the basic, it's within reason, that it's, it's re reasonably w well put that it's, it's by forensic experts that somebody didn't commit this crime it's kind of written down black and white. How how do how do how does that not get in? So in England they have what's called a lingering doubt appeal, where you can sort of accumulate loads of little appeal points and present that to the court and say this all this accumulated together and added together may have caused a miscarriage of justice. And you'll have a lingering doubt appeal where it's just that on the face of it, that went wrong, that went wrong and the conviction's unsafe and unsound, they call it. Mm -hmm. Up here, you have these tightly defined appeal points. So you're, you're talking about forensics that wasn't used at the trial. Um, as I said, the only way you can get facts back into the appeal court is fresh evidence appeals, which is the, the McGrath test, which is one, the, 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 the evidence that you're looking to rely on must be fresh, i.e. wasn't available at the time of the trial. So if it's just a, a decision not to have used forensic evidence that was there, or it wasn't used properly, then then they'll not look at the, the evidence as fresh. So say, <clears throat> for talking's sake, you're at a trial, you're 16 year old, 17 year old, whatever, <laughs> don't know nothing, never been in trouble before. Your lawyer messes up on forensics, doesn't get, doesn't get forensics done, or does, whatever, doesn't get something done. Then you get convicted then you go to try and argue that that how do they how, how do how do they go around that so you're looking to get this one piece of evidence back in the appeal court you're saying it's the forensics they've refused you and said that the evidence isn't fresh i.e you could have got it at the time of the trial so it's no new evidence um for whatever reason you didn't you didn't use it at your trial you're saying that my solicitor ought to have got me that um so that leads you into an anderson rather yeah, than so I'd, uh, there's potentially 
an argument for defective representation there. But these, again, is a really tightly defined principle where um, the conduct of the solicitor really has to fly in the face of reason. Um, the court recognises that um, a trial is a dynamic process where your QC has got to think on his feet and make difficult decisions in the kind of heat of the moment. So they've got a lot of discretion to basically make a mistake and get it wrong, even though that can result in catastrophic consequences for you, the accused. And can that result in multiple, like multiple consequences, like like as in multiple mistakes by the QCs, like as in. So you would have to point to one specific mistake that that is so egregious that it kind of flies in the face of reason, and no reasonable counsel could have possibly made that. Is anybody ever won an Anderson appeal? There are very few and far between in terms of what is uh, referred through the commission. Certainly in the past, I can point to cases where there have been one on first appeal, where you're statistically more likely to, to have your conviction quashed. Um, these we are smaller cases, Scott. Like, are they, do, they, do they use... Is, does, does defective representation really come into big cases, like maybe a look Mitchell cases, uh, like big cases that are kind of about the nude? Would that would that even like a lot of lawyers when I was there would tell you you don't want to start going down that road because once you go down that road you can't really come back for it. So it kind of puts you off going down that road in the I first think place. A lot, I think a lot of solicitors at first appeal are anxious to to not pursue an Anderson against somebody else in the profession. Um, we see that a lot that that clients that come to us were instructed to. Instructed their counsel that they want to go down the road to Anderson, they were told no. Um, but by the time it reaches reaches your desk, as I say, these these appeal points when they're first issued, so an Anderson, as I say, it's so tightly defined that it's only a reasonable counsel, no reasonable counsel could have made that decision. So that's not should or would. Aye. These are deliberately designed as such, so that appeals are are difficult. Aye. So. These types of cases are now on referral for the commission because they use the reasonable chance of success test. So what would what would be like if if you were if you're in for argument's sake, um, you've got forensic evidence that proves you've never done it, and you can't get any court. What is fresh evidence then? What 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 would what would accumulate as to be fresh evidence? So it has to be a, a newly discovered fact that wasn't available at the time of your trial. Um, Take the recent example for down south, they managed to use new DNA techniques to recover DNA for a sample that by way when he was convicted that wasn't available at the time of the trial because the science is new. You have to first prove that you couldn't have used it at your trial. Obviously in Scotland I know there's a lot going on and um, I don't know how much we can talk about this but um, the Crown are destroying evidence as well before you can even go, before you can even get a look, they're destroying evidence, so you can't even get to look. So say you had something like DNA that you think, oh, that DNA could maybe better my case, and then you go and ask for it, and it's been destroyed. How how is how are they getting away with that? Again, it's, there seems to be no public appetite for, for raising awareness to these kinds of things. There's the Crown recently of openly um, maliciously prosecuted certain individuals in relation to the Rangers case to the tune of upwards of 50 million in compensation. Um, 
that should really horrify people and have people marched on the street like the the, the levels of corruption going on in the crown office Aye. but what they what they 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 hide behind the fact that they've disclosed their evidence to the defense at the time of the trial and see that they didn't need to disclose any evidence again at the times in appeal and actively actively do try and and stop us our organization and people who are pursuing an appeal for obtaining evidence that might might be the silver bullet overturning their conviction their testable slides are destroyed or or they just um they just don't engage with our pursuits to, to try and recover recover evidence that I, I mean obviously i know this but it should, I, I think a lot i think a lot of viewers in the public won't know this kind of stuff's going on like why what part does the media play in this? Did, 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 did the media even report on this? Did the media ever back? Where is the media in this? Why do they know, as you say, March? Why is it know the headlines that. I don't know the answer to that, Sean, because there's obviously a thousand stories in Mojo. We've had clients who have had young journalists, even for their local paper, fall on their case for weeks and reporting on the evidence. And, and by the time it comes to be published, there's none. There's no editors only want to take them up on it. It seems to be kind of controversial to say that a case could be a potential miscarriage of justice nowadays. Which, um, as I say, when we talk back about the the the, the cases of the seventies that were that were properly overturned, they had the backing of TV companies, investigative journalists, teams of lawyers raising awareness to these kinds of things but it seems today that people are quite comfortable to believe that that miscarriages of justice are a thing of the past and they simply didn't happen in this country i'm here to tell you that it's absolutely no the case they're happening on a on a regular basis and perhaps things are worse now because the the formulation of the commission up here certainly has had the, had the opposite effect they can say that they are addressing the problem whilst all the pressure to maintain convictions is coming down the way for the court right. to the commission. So when they do refer a case, they'll spend a few paragraphs of their appeal judgment disposing of your appeal point and then a number of paragraphs kicking around the commission for even sending the case up. So the commission are terrified to send cases and we are sending applications into the commission. But it still doesn't get picked up in the media. No. So... How do we change that? How because it seems to me it's I mean the red top papers seem to just have a field day way and write whatever they want and a lot of it's lies yeah. a lot of it's so we'll we'll tell anybody that will listen the realities of the of the appeal system in Scotland. Um, so the third and just as important function that we do is awareness raising and and seeking to affect real change in the system. Um, all three years at Mojo go to go to work every day championing for a day that we can close the doors i.e. we've identified every miscarriage of justice in Scotland we've corrected it through the appeal court and through the commission and I, I've successfully reintegrated everybody into rich and, and, and happy lives that they can they can live these things none of these are possible but that's why the third important function is, is awareness raising we take a gradualist approach to this we get 30 35 young mostly law students, some criminology students, some psychology students to come in. And these are the people that are going to inherit the criminal justice system. Some of them are going to be expert witnesses giving evidence in court. Most of them are going to be solicitors practicing in courts. 
Um, so many of them go for a kind of their future. They know how it goes wrong by seeing firsthand working with us where and how and why it goes wrong, and they'll have the tools to to stop it happening at such regularity in the future. Is there it's a, a gradualist approach? This is obviously your pers personal opinion, Scott. Obviously, it's just a, a question I'll ask you yourself. Is there an element of class when you get to the kind of higher elite levels of the judicial system? Is there an element of class? Um, I.e., is there many working class high court judges? Is there many high court um, QCs that are working class? I think there's a kind of active mechanism to keep the the working classes away from the bar and for the higher echelons of the criminal justice system and that's the devilin system in scotland where you have to go to get to the bar you have to go and work full-time two years devilin working under another casey um i've done some work experience well as a law student you have have a good wee pot of gold to be able to yeah, do that i know many people with it deep pockets and, no. and, and perhaps rich parents rich, find them rich can, work, and daddy. can work full-time for two years um unfortunately and that's <laughs> I see it. My conclusions for that is that is to keep the riffraff out of the, of the profession, if you like. Now, people do work hard and they go into practice and there is certainly working class um, KCs out there. Um, I've done some work experience at the High Court when I was a law student um, and rubbing shoulders with, with QCs as they were at the time. Um, and I was told that the last what um, the location and occupation of their father is before they're allowed to go to the bar. Now, one of the people I spoke to didn't know who their dad was um, and just made something up, an accountant in London. Another one's dad was a taxi driver and, and, and she felt the need to make something up as well. Um, she had certainly not put in taxi driver in Glasgow. Would you say there's a kind of family legacy as well in the court system? It seems to be like... Um... Like as in like there's a lot of relations, yeah, a lot of kind of. I think um, we've got a small country, a small population of five million, and as a result, the kind of upper echelons of the of the criminal justice sector are all quite in incestuous, for want of a better word. They all go to the same dinner parties. They're all members of the same golf club. So this is the judiciary, the the crown office, and and the top defence QCs. They all know each other, and they've all done favours for each other 10 years ago and stuff like that and and um, yeah it's all it's all too close knit when um, you speak to students that come to us for Ireland and the rest of the UK Scotland's quite neatly ring fenced as a as a separate legal jurisdiction to the rest of the United Kingdom but what will happen in England and, and the rest of the UK is they can just ship somebody in that doesn't know anybody if somebody has to come into a case and ruffle a few feathers um, say it's in Belfast Aye. they'll fly a lawyer in for London that doesn't know him then he's happily there to blow everybody out of the water and doesn't know anybody a favour and doesn't know anybody at all we've just simply not got that up here in Scotland it's too small a tight knit bunch what I was amazed at, what a story that amazed me that never ever picked up any kind of momentum was uh, I couldn't get away with this when I first heard that that Kate, Kate, well, cases. I keep. I kind of get used to saying that, <laughs> but cases and uh, judges are the only people in Scotland that don't need to open their books. Um, and 
I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident that, that I can say this, that Alex Salmond asked Lord Gill to come to a meeting to speak about this because there had been people who had brought it up in Parliament and uh, Lord Gill patched the meeting <laughs> and just says, I'm no coming. Uh, so he told the First Minister, I'm no coming and we're no opening up our books. How, how does that happen? How do how do you get to that level of weakness? Level of power. Is is that is it just down to power, Scott? Is that yeah, just I like think so. there are there are unfortunately the the once you become a, a high court judge or a, a you you're a law unto yourself basically you're you are the law I feel like and because um, there is a, there is obviously a lot of stuff called case law which I always I mean I studied a bit of law. Um, I studied like, like half three years of law, so I was kind of done bits and bobs it. But um, it's like uh, some of the stuff that you kind of you go through and you see the the, the just the way that the, the, the laws framed. I thought obviously you've got the legislator, you've got the executive, and then you've got the judiciary. In my eyes, the judiciary is just there to enforce what the executive and the legislature put forward. But it seems to me that they kind of take um, laws and, if you want, for a better word, bastardize them and manipulate them into whatever suits. Mm -hmm. Would you would you say that's a oh, fair comment? As I say, the the criminal justice system in Scotland is a is a convictions factory where close to ninety percent of the cases that go to trial. Uh, result in a conviction um, it's slightly skewed and, and less in terms of sexual offending um, which is by nature much harder to prove but in terms of the appeals law that we deal with we see every kind of remedy or potential avenue of attack for a wrongful conviction what the Crown need to argue shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and what the appellant needs to argue in order to successfully overturn a conviction is massive and it becomes a massive hurdle the touchstone we touched on anderson earlier on no reasonable counsel could have possibly made that decision that's a extremely high hurdle right. if it's to say that they were defective and their their conduct let you down so badly that it may have caused a miscarriage of justice no reasonable counsel should or would uh as much easier to prove but could nigh on impossible um it's it's very stark in the in the Murov doctrine that you touched on before. Right. The the. I was going to ask you, can I explain a wee bit about that? Uh, it's, the, it's the doctrine of mutual corroboration. So, as I touched on with sexual offending, by its very nature, it's often committed in secret. It's no, it's no often times a crime where there tends to be a lot of witnesses. So the requirement for corroboration, i.e., there needs to be two independent sources of evidence for each of the crucial facts in a case. Um, so that's the that a crime has taken place and that you the accused person has done it there needs to be two sources of evidence in Scotland for each of these um, because there's no traditionally another witness to, to sexual offending the crown um, the court rather come up with the 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 clever judicial fix to that problem which is the 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 mutual corroboration i.e. to independent complainers speaking to circumstances so interconnected in time, character and circumstance that also illustrates an underlying course of criminal conduct. So four different 
points that you that you must prove. So these are additional. The, the court right. recognised that they were circumventing a protection for an accused person in Scotland, which is that the, each offence requires corroboration. Um, to get around the facts that this is difficult in sexual offending, they said that each of the complainers, if they're so similar in what they're saying, they can they can corroborate one another. Um, Am I right in saying that Lord Carloway actually tried to dismantle the jury system for that? Is that so right? the Carloway review um, was an attempt to remove the requirement for corroboration, which ironically, I suppose, um, come shortly after the the cadre judgment, which, um, as you know, introduced the right to to speak to a solicitor. Aye. And uh, if you were questioned without the option to have speaking to a solicitor first, that, that is ruled inadmissible and then can turn into a potential appeal point. So before that went to the UK Supreme Court in Cadre's case, um, a bench of seven Scottish judges had refused his appeal and said that the requirement for corroboration provides that much protection for an accused person in Scotland that you don't need to speak to a solicitor first and there should be no automatic right to speak to a solicitor first. Um, and am I right in saying they were warned a few times by Europe to kind of fix it with the police thing? Like, like obviously there was kind of... They were to told, like, I don't know if it was a directive or whatever, yeah. but... Um, they I were think kind that, that might be votes for prisoners that you're talking about for Europe. Was the, it? Uh, the UK Supreme Court decision, as I say, came after the Scottish judges emphasised when refusing cadres appeal up in Scotland that corroboration is so important and, and protected them so much that that basically you didn't need a solicitor to defend you at a police interview. The UK Supreme Court reversed that decision and said that you should have an automatic right to speak to a solicitor. But a few years further to the line, corroboration has went for being so important that it protects the accused people and allows them to refuse in the cadre case to to something that that is just an inconvenience for the court and for the crown, and they're wanting to kind of chip away at and and refuse. So. Obviously, like we've took a look at the system. Obviously, we've looked at it in quite quite a lot of detail. Um, how do we heal? How do we heal the system? How how do we move on? How do we take like do we go and look at Scandinavia? Do we, I mean, what 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 kind of steps would you take, Scott? So, I I'm asked this question all the time in terms of how best to support your clients. What we need is a a functioning appeal system that's able to correct and identify miscarriages of justice. Uh need to be able to offer my clients hope in that regard. So I touched on it earlier and I would introduce lingering doubt appeals to Scotland or as an alternative, um, do away with the need for seeking out a technical appeal point to go to the commission and, and present your argument to the commission who then have powers to quash your conviction rather than send it up to the appeal court to have a, a three-day appeal hearing or a two-day appeal hearing. Do Give the commission have the powers to quash your conviction? They've only got commission to send you back to the appeal court. They were right. founded to be the gateway back to the appeal court and have been sort of bullied into shape to be the gatekeepers for the appeal court. And um, How many cases, do you know, I don't know, you might not know numbers, how many cases have they sent back that's been quashed? Um, the numbers off the top of my head, I don't have, but I think it's 1% successful appeals um, result for an application for the commission. 
So they're supposed to be the gateway back into the appeal court for innocent people that have exhausted all opportunities. And only 1% of the cases that they send back? No, no, 1% of the successful appeals. Right, right, right. So I'm going to ask you a hard question here, Scott. And um, is, the, is the commission fit for purpose? The commission's no set up in such a way to do what we're supposed to do and what it says on the tin at the start. Um, as I say, they're supposed to be the independent, impartial watchdog for somebody that finds themselves wrongfully convicted and exhausted the ordinary appeals process. They've got powers to reinvestigate and find potential leads that they don't use. Um, and like I say, the pressure comes all the way down for the appeal court through the commission to the innocent person rather than th the innocent person presents their argument to the commission who then help them work a workable appeal point into shape and then that's sent to the appeal court. Now, the appeal court, as I say, they're set up to dispose of these cases and make sure that public confidence is first and foremost and that they can refuse as many cases as possible. That's why I would remove that element and actually give more powers to the commission to just quash a conviction. They think there may have been a miscarriage of justice and they have the power to say that conviction is no longer sound. It's it's unsafe and it's been quashed. And then even leave then it up to the you, Crown to have a, reindict if There'll they be an automatic right to a retrial, but then the appellant will only be fighting with, with two arms tied behind their back as they are on an appeal. Uh, because you could even, like, if the, com the commission quashed it, you could the, the, the Crown could have the right to reindict if they thought that that was... Because a lot of people that I speak to... Um, and probably including myself, I, th I think if I was to go to a retrial with the evidence that I've got, I don't think that it would be anywhere near the same trial. Mm -hmm. um, it would be totally different. And I think that is kind of broad across miscarriage of justice victims. Mm -hmm. um, because you scrutinise your case that much that you find every single bit of detail, you know your case inside out. Um, and you see where it's went wrong, you can see where it's, you can actually see where it started to go down that road. But it's so, so, and I can say it's so disheartening when you can't get huge appeal points in. And then even the fact that it's so disheartening when you turn around and go, oh, look, I've got this. And then you hear they might have destroyed evidence and you go, What's the point? So it's a difficult conversation that I need to have with, with clients and their families all the time as that what they see as potential appeal points or we sometimes call it a come on to fuck appeal and they just want to, or a kitchen sink appeal. You right. want to chuck everything at it and say, look, this went wrong, this went wrong, this went wrong, but you can't help, they only look at them in right. cumulo. They only look at them as a whole and add it no. together. You need that one point that gets you home and dry. And that's never easy to do. And as you see, once you get once you get the case, the case is usually been through maybe a, a trial, a first appeal, maybe even a commission, and then you're getting left mm -hmm. with. And as we spoke about before, you can, you can't get any of these points that were brought in before brought back in. Mm -hmm. So you're really dealing with with scraps, real scraps. That's why I'm really fortunate to be able to be senior case worker trying to still correct potential miscarriages of justice um, as I was right for a first year law student but it's why I'm really fortunate to be able to run the aftercare function where you can 
you've built in the trust with the clients through working with the casework team to to have that they know that we've had these difficult conversations with them we've told them that we've got a mountain to climb to 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 potentially overturn this conviction um but what we can offer is lifelong aftercare support upon release from prison whatever happens in your legal case because we believe that that you shouldn't have been in prison for the first place. Um, people don't come to us for that kind of support. They come to us because they want their conviction quashed. I know. But we're able to then offer them something else where they can see real tangible benefits in your life. Um, I work with a number of people that have been lucky enough to have won their appeal. It's no, it's not all bleak. But Aye. again, that's sometimes when the real damage comes to the forefront. Um, a client. So the first thing I'll do for a client that comes out of prison one way or other upon winning a successful appeal or um, at the end of their sentence or they've been paroled as I'll, I'll, I'll pick them up and then I'll sort, take them to their accommodation and, and to a shop and they're not able to work a supermarket anymore. No. The damage and the institutionalization that, that, that occurs for a long prison sentence. That's enormous. It's is, is, is crazy. A lot of clients have spent their first night of freedom, haven't walked at the appeal court on on Cathy, my boss's couch. No. Um, Cathy, the, Cathy is like a saint, but in that way, yeah. she will take... But there's a client that... Um, they're still, they'll be waiting in, the, in, in our couch or in our spare room. They're waiting for the screw to come and let them out the next day. No. They don't know that they're able to just open the door and come down the stairs and switch the light on and off whenever they want anymore. And to take these people and to have the opportunity to transform them back into functional members of first their own family, because their family has to readjust to this new person that's come back and deal with the sense of loss that the person that went into prison for certain they didn't do. There's no damage to shape that, right. that they didn't recognise they didn't recognise them as the person they were. So the family has to deal with the grief of that, having lost the person and lost the time. Aye. And the person has to deal with the fact that the reaction he was expecting for his family isn't quite what he expected because he wasn't prepared for them not to, not so to be the same. The real, the real message here um, for me is that wrongful convictions, there's no winners at all. There's no winners for the victims. Yeah. There's no winners for the, the innocent party. There's no the families of the innocent party. That, so it's just that it's it's just so frustrating that there's there isn't an appetite for for for, for change. Change. I it's like it's, what, it's like a taboo subject. Yeah. What I'm pleased to see this week at the time of recording this is um, that Andy Malkinson, um, supported by Appeal down down south, had won his conviction, and that's raised a highlight, put the spotlight on um, a major myth in terms of victims of miscarriage of justice is that everyone is handsomely compensated. Um, the system in England, um, in this instance, much more restrictive than Scotland. Um, and what he's highlighted is that you have your bed and board taken back off you if you're compensated for time spent in prison. I know, I that, think that's mental. So it was introduced by a, a Labour Home Secretary and pushed through the House of Lords that they could claw back your saved living expenses, i.e. what you'd have paid in rent and in food when you were spending time having your liberty lost for, for certain days in the day. Fortunately, in Scotland, we don't have the bed and board policy. Um, but 
what we do have is the same restrictive process. It has to be a fresh evidence appeal. So all these other types of technical appeal points that um, are available to you. Um, so this myth that people get their convictions quashed and get a million pound, it's rubbish. Yeah. And I've, sp I've spoke to you before, obviously, about Barry George and, and, and we couldn't really cut, we couldn't really explain why, but they turned around and his appeal, his compensation appeal, and correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, and said he wasn't innocent enough. Yeah, so the legislation in Scotland and in England is that you be compensated if a newly discovered fact proves beyond a reasonable doubt that you never committed the offence. So if you're lucky enough to be in that position to be asking for compensation, the court has already said that you're the victim of a miscarriage of justice. So that's inbuilt in, in every kind of appeal point. So we, we touched on Anderson defective representation. You can They can still say that the, the, the second test is always, and this has resulted in a miscarriage right. of justice. So no competent counsel could have done that, and it resulted in a miscarriage of justice. So by the time you're asking for compensation, the appeal court's already said you're the victim of miscarriage of justice, but it can only come for a newly discovered fact, i.e. a fresh evidence appeal, and uh, that has to prove to the to the government beyond a reasonable doubt that you're innocent. Now, proving you're innocent beyond a reasonable doubt is is almost impossible. That's no, why the burden's on the on the crown to prove that you're guilty. Um, so only fresh evidence appeals in England, and we have an ex gratia scheme as well in Scotland. Um, so i.e. ex gratia means that you've, there's no legal obligation but there's a moral obligation to to pay out um, if there's been s severe misconduct in the police. So we have two schemes in Scotland. Um, so only misconduct by the police or a, or a government authority and the same restrictive fresh evidence where the burden's on you. So as you touched on, Barry George um, was told that even though you won a fresh evidence appeal and the court has said that you're a victim of miscarriage of justice. They said that that fresh evidence doesn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it wasn't you, <laughs> and you and you're not compensated. So obviously that's how TC and Joe Steele got paid out then, because obviously theirs was police corruption, and they, obviously it was quite quite clear police corruption. Um, but looking back and and. To be honest, the money really is the last thing you're interested in. A lot of people think that that's... The amount of people that used to say to me when I was going up for my appeal, oh, you might get you might get some amount of money, but... And I'm like, I honestly could not care less like about the money. That's really no what I'm interested in at all. Um, the clients don't want the money. They don't want the government's money. I, I, know. I speak to clients who are fortunate enough to have spent a long time out of prison now and work compensated at the time um, and very few of them have still got a penny at their name like I say they're damaged they've didn't understand the value of money because they've not had to spend money for 10, Aye. 15, 20 years having done a life sentence and they're they're given um, a large sum of money with no protective measures put in place to assess whether they're mentally able to, to, to handle that large sum of money and they'll spend it they'll be um impulsive they they don't want it they see it as the government's money they they want and obviously they want what they can't have which is the time back of course absolutely rife and in, in terms of, and all the kind of traumatized cases so this is what i was kind of just to kind of finalize um 
can I bring the podcast to an end? What to looking at the the GPs and stuff like that. This is the the the, the, the kind of point that I was wanting to make was they they've said to a lot of clients that we've worked with, you're too damaged. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with you. Mm -hmm. Like I don't know where to send you. I don't know where to put you. Um, what kind of message is that for somebody? So yeah, that's uh, something that we have to regularly unpack. So the, what we touched on earlier on, Adrian Grounds' report says I'm too damaged and I'm irreparable. I try to flip that on its head and say, look, we'll never be able to rebuild you back to exactly where you were, but we can repair you a bit. Aye. We can we can move forward and we can move forward for there. You'll never be completely repaired. Um, irreparable mean, doesn't mean that there's nothing that can be done. And you can still have a pushback for a client who who says, look, I have, and, and they, they function in, in, in pure chaos and they thrive in that and, and, and they don't oh, want to be reached. And that is one of the most difficult things in my job is that some clients don't want to be reached, they don't want to be helped and, and they can't be helped. But we're told before we had access to, to Jeremy's clinic, the trauma centers, GPs, um, private hospitals, all these different places that are set up to deal with victims of uh, traumatic experiences that the guys are too damaged to, to help. and they Too complex. Too complex. Um, so when people, I think it's a lot more um, at the forefront nowadays, people have a lot better understanding what PTSD was. But when I first started, I think a lot of people just thought it as something that happens to somebody that's been in the army. Ah, that's and what they've, I thought, they've right. suffered one catastrophic incident in the army where they've seen a colleague or a friend have something absolutely terrible happen to them or it might have happened to them themselves. Um, Adrian Crown's report says that our clients are as damaged as somebody that's had a catastrophic incident happen to them every second of every day for their whole sentence and beyond as things continue to re-traumatise them. But the clients have been told they've, they've, they're irreparable and I want to shift away from that. I, and they're not too complex to reach. Um, I want to focus on what we can do to help all these individuals and what, what can be done and no stand on a soapbox and say nobody understands my clients there's no help out there for my clients I've seen it as my role as aftercare coordinator to find the support that is there and to build my own practice to find out how I can actually best support them myself right. if the support's not there I'll make the support there um, but yeah you touched on it earlier on at the start Sean a number of the clients, because they find they're too complex to be reached with talking therapy and, and, and ordinary psychiatry, they'll have a number of tablets slung at them. So we focus on how does somebody live with the trauma or wrongful conviction and the trauma not being something that rules their life, but something that they live with, an incident in their life that they then live with. Um, but these guys that are absolutely numb to the world because of medication mm. after medication flung at them, they're not living with trauma. They're just yeah. can't feel it. Addiction, they're just addicts. Yeah, like tra traumatized addicts that the like the prison churn out day daily. Um, so see, obviously, just to kind of finish on a positive note, um, you never know, Scott. The group therapy that you've started and the group work that you're doing could be groundbreaking in this field. You never know. I hope it so. could be. Um, it could be the kind of thing that other countries adopt and start saying look well maybe we do get them together get these people together and then they can bounce off each other so that GPs and all these people that say that we're too damaged are aging grounds and stuff um, I'm going to stick with my man Gabber Mai and go with him and believe that 
were not traumatised, um, too traumatised. So um, I think just to finish on a, a positive note, I think I think the work that we're doing and I think the work that you're doing is excellent. Um, I'm really proud of everybody. Cathy, legend. <laughs> Ewan, legend. Paddy, legend. Um, so just kind of any final kind of things. Anybody that's suffering out there in silence, Scott, that's maybe suffered a miscarriage of just as any messages to anybody that or family members, anything like that, just a wee message. It's I think, like I say, people that have suffered this particular type of injustice feel that, that why has this happened to me? Um, and the unfortunate fact is that it can happen to anyone. And that make sure that you reach out to to those that can support you at the earliest possible opportunity. We always say the best time to correct a miscarriage of justice is at the trial. Make sure that the end of day that you know that's been falsely accused is, is properly represented and right across their own case. Because by the time it comes to an appeal, it'll be them that's um, them that's to blame for for no properly instructing their solicitor, even though they they have never been in bother before in their life and never seen the inside of a court. Right. So yeah, um, and again, there's. A word we don't like to use too much. There is hope, and uh, there is always a way to to survive and live with these things, whatever the outcome. I always say to people that it's the criminal justice system that's put you and your family in this place, um, and only you can get yourself out of it. Don't give them an hard day, yeah. It? Only you can get yourself I mean, out. It's, out. it's easier said than done, and we've, we've obviously spoken about it at length, and we've worked with people at length. But it is that kind of don't give them another day. Don't don't. Um, don't give them that any more any more your time. It's just it's they've took enough um, and they've damaged you enough, and don't give them another another minute. But honestly, Scott, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, to no, have you. I think um, um, I think much like us, what you are going to try and achieve might be misunderstood. But I think you've got a remarkably positive message, and, I, and I'm really proud of you for trying to share it, Sean. Well done.